0: 600 Philistines. So there is clearly some sort of Philistine assault, some sort of Philistine opposition. Did, it, did the sound just now come on? Wow, isn't it nice? Now everybody will get on the tape is going to come into this right in the middle of the of the class. Is that not correct? That's correct. I announced that the tape in the middle. Okay. Okay. Just wanted to make sure that 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 gets there. So we're studying in Judges 3:31. The judgeship of Shamgar, or the deliverance of Shamgar. He is not a judge. So we need to ask the question what's going on here with the Philistines? How did they attack? Where was it felt? When did it occur? We need to ask another more important question who is Shamgar? Is he a Jew or not? From where does he come? And how does he emerge as a champion of Israel? And then we need to ask, and it's a very difficult question to answer, how did he manage to slaughter 600 Philistines who were known for their military might, for their technological advance and, um, and their ruthlessness? And he defeats them with what is called in the text an ox goad. But if you're from any place where they have cattle, it's what we call now a cattle prod. Uh, and it wasn't electrified, so it shows that he had tremendous military skill. Now in terms of when, uh, when Shamgar, this episode takes place, we, we really don't know for sure. The author puts it in place here between the judgeship of Ehud and the judgeship of Deborah. Uh, the only other mention of Shamgar in the scripture is found over in, uh, Judges chapter 5 verse 6, where it just mentions in the days of Shamgar, uh, son of Anat, and that relates it relates it to the oppression that occurs during the same time as um, as Deborah. So what happens here is that we, as far as we can judge, is that Shamgar's deliverance takes place at roughly the same time as the judgeship of Deborah. That's covered in chapters four and five. It might precede it a little bit. It might be taking place just. Uh, in the first part, if we look at verse four of chapter four, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And that indicates that this is a period of time that she is judging. It's a participle. And it indicates that there's this process that takes, process of time that takes place prior to the military assault that takes place from, uh, Jabin, the king of Canaan, who is reigning out of a northern Town that had been previously destroyed by Joshua, and he is trying to apparently resurrect his dynasty and reassert the, the power. Hatsor was a strong military uh, fortification, and they had a, a strong a, a stronghold for Canaanite resistance to Joshua during the conquest, and conque- and, and they were conquered completely and destroyed by, by Joshua. So apparently, one of the a dynasty uh, yeah, being, interestingly enough, we'll get into the etymology of that later, seems to be more of a title, a dynastic title, rather than a personal name. And um, it seems to be that somebody in the royal family of Hotzor survived, and now that they have probably reached adulthood, they are seeking to rally the, the troops and to see if they can throw the Jews out of the land. has sort of a modern ring to it, doesn't it, especially in light of everything going on in Israel right now. So in terms of time, Ehud comes along during this probably transition period after Ehud has died. The the land was undisturbed for 80 years, and then you have a growing threat coming from the north. Now, if we look at a map on the overhead, and doing Old Testament study always necessitates having a map handy so that you can orient yourself, what we see here you follow the arrow, is that the first assault came from the north. Off the map, up in the north, in Mesopotamia area, of modern Syria, and the assault came in from the north and down this way. And it was a judge from the south, from down near Davir, just outside of Hebron, that Othniel came and rallied the troops and Made a move north. Now, in Israel, that's only about 70 miles, so that's like moving uh, an army from here up to the north of, uh, of Worcester somewhere. It's not that far. So they rallied the troops and went north, defeated uh, the oppressor in the north. And then the second oppressor came from the south uh, east, Moab, across the uh, Jordan in the area known as the Transjordan, and he came across the forge of the Jordan and set up a stronghold in Jericho. And we saw the episode with Ehud last time. And He takes out the um, takes out Eglon, assassinates Eglon, and then <clears throat> the uh, rallies the troops of Ephraim in the hill country. They come down, seize the fords, which cuts off the back door escape hatch for the uh, troops, and they kill ten thousand in the Moabite army. 80 years goes by, which is two generations, biblically speaking, which gives uh, the Arabs now, and we saw how all of these groups are descendants of the Arabs, gives these Arab forces an opportunity to rebuild their troops. So now they reassert themselves. Now, Hatsor is located. I've lost my. uh There we go. There's a pointer. Hotsor is located up here in the north. Here's Mount Tabor. This is the area of the battle. And Hotsor is located roughly in this vicinity in the north. That's where the battle with Deborah is going to be. Now, the point I'm making is that the, this, this, in, this uh, battle that Shamgar engages in comes from the Philistines. Now, the Philistines have a stronghold. The Philistines were Greek sea peoples. And during the, this time period and for about 200 years prior to this, the Greeks had been sending out a, just waves of settlers who had been leaving Greece and going out all around the Mediterranean and establishing colonies. One of their colonies was over in Carthage, and that became one of their strongest uh, colonies. And eventually the Carthaginians were a major enemy of Rome and eventually defeated by Rome. They were led by Hannibal. Hannibal was the one who led the armies of Carthage uh, over the Alps on elephants. So uh, th- that was; uh, those were related to the Philistines. They also assaulted the northern uh, shore of Egypt. They tried to establish colonies to the north of Egypt and so the pharaohs uh, through several generations had to provide uh, armies and strengthen their defenses along the coastline in the north. To prevent the incursion of the Philistine sea peoples and then there's a group that comes along here and establishes their their uh, their colonies just along the court uh, the coast here in what we now call the Gaza Strip in fact Gaza was one of the uh, five cities of the Lords of the Philistines so it is in this area so you see that Israel is being assaulted from the southeast from the north from the southwest and even from uh, this uh, Canaanite incursion, but the Canaanites under um, uh, Yabin are in alliance with the uh, Arab forces that surround them. So you always see this, this, uh, this thing going on here. Now, this is all important to do this kind of historical analysis, and especially in something like this, in order to find out what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us. We see that after him, that is, after Ehud... Came Shamgar. Now, the next question we ask is, who is Shamgar? Well, let's go back a minute. I want to finish answering that first question, which is that this this assault from the southwest from the Philistines is not a major incursion, but it seems to be there is some military uh, pressure felt uh, in the tribe of Judah in the south from the Philistines. It's not as major, it's not as significant as the previous ones, but there is a strong military threat from the from the south from the Philistine. Uh, colonies there. So we're told this, this, is, this individual is named Shamgar. Now, if any of you have been around here for a while, you know that one of the characteristics of the Hebrew language is that words are made up of consonants. They're called, uh, a, it's called a trilateral root, every word just about in Hebrew is composed of three consonants and they don't have vowels. Vowels were simply added later. Vowels were pronounced, but, but they weren't written. And that is characteristic of Hebrew. So that you have somebody like David and you have a Dalet, a Vav, and a Dalet and it would be written like that. And of course, the W is pronounced like a V and you insert the vowel. So you see that David has a name composed of three letters. You have Barak. Who is? Uh, it would look like this in the Hebrew, and the three consonants are B R K. Hebrew is written from right to left, English from left to right, so you have B R and K. Uh, Ehud starts off with a aleph. Ehud looks like this, and so you have a, a initial consonant that is transliterated like an apostrophe, and then the vowel point, and then the second consonant H, and then a D. So you see, all of these names are based on a trilateral root, and that trilateral root sometimes has a suffix added or not, sometimes longer words like Avraham are combinations of two Hebrew words. But when you come to a word like Shamgar, if you count the consonants, you'll discover that there aren't three, there are four. Now that's generated a tremendous amount of discussion in the scholarly literature about just what kind of name is Shamgar, it's not a Hebrew name which means he came from somewhere else. He is not a native Jew. Now, that is an extremely important point to understand what the text is getting at here. His name is not only is Shamgar not a Hebrew text, but we've discovered from archaeological uh, records in, at Nuzi, which was an important uh, archaeological discovery north of Israel during this, uh, and dating to this time, that this is a, a Hurrian name. Now, the Hurrians were an ancient people who, who lived during this time, and they operated up in Syria. So we see that, that he is a Hurrian. Well, the Hurrians were also a mercenary people, sort of like the Swiss... Provided mercenary soldiers to uh, guard the Pope. I think they still do. And, and in the uh, 19th, 18th, 17th, on back into the 17th century, the Swiss have always uh, had preserved their neutrality, but they have had a strong martial bent, and they have provided mercenary troops that have been among the highest and best trained troops uh, in the in the modern world. For example, the before the French Revolution. Uh, the kings of france were all guarded by swiss troops they were mercenary troops and so the hurrians were mercenaries and we know from uh, from egyptian records that there were a large number of hurrian mercenaries operating in the egyptian army now that's a second important thing to learn from history now another thing we need to observe here in the text is that his name is shamgar Ben-Anat. Shamgar, the son of Anat. The word uh, Hebrew for son is the word Ben, as in Benjamin, Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. So he is called the son of Anat. Now, who is Anat? Well, in the Canaanite religious system, the chief god is El, who's kind of off the off center stage right now and in the background, and he's really replaced by his son Baal, the storm god. Baal is also known in the um, in Phoenician as Hadad. Now Baal has a consort, a female goddess named Anat who is the goddess of war, and she is an extremely violent, bloody individual. You read through some of the ancient texts that describe her wading through the battlefield, drinking blood and gore dripping off of her teeth and off of her hands, and it's just uh, uh, just horrendous sort of stuff. And Anath is the female goddess of war. And we know that as far back as the 19th century BC, which is 1800 to 1900 BC, that Anat was assimilated into the Egyptian pantheon of goddesses. And she becomes the personal protectress of the pharaoh and that the Pharaoh's elite troops from at least the time of the Exodus, the 15th century, we have evidence that from at least the 15th or 14th century, the elite troops that guarded the Pharaoh, just as the elite troops that guarded Caesar were called the Praetorian Guard, and you have the Swiss Uh, troops that guarded the uh, French kings, the elite troops of the Pharaoh, the special forces, the force recon types of uh, the Egyptian army, were called the sons of Anat. That was their technical name in Egyptian. They were the sons of Anat. So here you have this extremely tantalizing individual. He has a Hurrian name. He is called the son of Anat. Which indicates that uh, that he has some connection to the Canaanite god or goddess of war, and he is um, not said to have any spiritual. There's no mention that he is uh, that the Holy Spirit comes upon him. There's no suggestion that he's Jewish. There's just this tantalizing mention of this individual. Now we have an, one inscription from the third year of Ramesses Fourth, which is dated about 1166 B.C., and I think those dates are questionable. could be a little later than that, I think, in a, in a revised chronology. But he mentions the Hapiru, which is another term used for these uh, mercenary troops, of the truth, troop of Anath, who had 800 men in that particular troop. And that these troops, the Ben-Anath troops under Ramesses IV were used by him to set up a defensive posture to throw back the incursions of the sea peoples during his reign. Okay, now i given you all this historical background. The point that, that I am making is once we get into the history of what's going on at that time, is we know that there was a hardcore, first-class, elite troop of soldiers that the Pharaoh used as his battering ram against the incursions of the Philistine sea peoples, and they were called the sons of Anat. And here we come across this cryptic figure in Judges named Shamgar, son of Anath. And from the etymology of his name, and from the fact that he too is called the son of Anath, that I think we can conclude that this guy is not a Jew, he's probably not a believer, but he is a mercenary warrior serving under Pharaoh, and that God uses him to come in and kick the Philistines, out of, the, of uh, the south of Judah in order to protect Israel. Now, what are the implications of that? The implication is that there's no one among the Jews that's trusting God, that's following a spiritual life that God can use in order to protect Israel. There's a major problem here. God is using a Gentile to bless Israel instead of Israel to bless the Gentiles according to the Abrahamic Covenant. It is a reversal. So when uh, the writer of Judges mentions this, he is making a very strong statement. It's a slap in the face to the Jews. See, you have failed so badly, Israel, that in order for God to preserve His covenant preserve the nation in the land, He's obviously raising up leaders in the north, but there's no one in the south that God can call on. There's no leader to stand in the gap in the south. God has to use an unbeliever Operating in the Egyptian army to come in and remove the Philistine threat and to protect your left flank. And what the writer is is indicating in all of this is a tremendous indictment on the leadership of the nation. The point that he is making is that paganism and pagan thought has so infiltrated the worldview and the, cultural, the culture of Israel that they no longer can produce leaders that can defend the nation. Probably they've become pacifistic. See, we see the same kind of thing happening in, uh, in our nation today. That because of our, the weakness of our culture that it permeates everyone, and even those who go into military service are permeated by these cultural deficiencies, and they take that cultural worldview with them when they go into the military and they advance through the ranks, and then eventually they end up in, uh, uh, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they end up serving in the Pentagon, and they have had to compromise a number of principles to get there. I have... Um, uh, men I know who I have known since college days. I remember uh, what they were like when they were in college, when we were in ROTC together. And now they are serving as uh, in, in a capacity 0 06, which is a bird colonel in the Pentagon, as well as uh, one who is a commander of a tank uh, battalion down at uh, Fort Hood and some others. And as I look at these men, I realize that they have had to compromise and, and sacrifice some of their personal ideals in order to stay in the military and reach the level of rank that they now hold, and what we 're going to see when we get into Judges chapter Four is that one of the consequences of paganism is that there is a role reversal uh, there's a reversal of a uh, role concept for men and women in the nation. Look down at verse um, look down at verse six after God gives Deborah instructions on how to take out the uh, uh, Yabin, who's the king of of, uh, Hazor. She sends and summons Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and says, the Lord God of Israel has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and I will draw out to you Sisera. Now, the person who's speaking is God, and God is saying to Barak, you're going to have victory. And Barack says, "Wait a minute, I won't go unless you go with me, Deborah." See, there is a the the writer is really drawing out the fact that what happens in paganism is you have a role reversal of sexes. Men are failing to function as leaders, and women are st- stepping into the gap and becoming defeminized because they have to serve as military leaders. And we see this same kind of thing going on in our culture where we have women going into the military and there's more and more pressure to put, mili- put women in combat roles, combat positions, and God forbid, even in the subservice. Do I hear anybody say amen? How about that? All you sub guys, I knew I would get some response from somebody. But that's the same thing that's happening today because what happens is a pagan cultural pressure looks at the role distinctions as interchangeable, that they really aren't hard and fast, and women can serve in men's positions, and men can serve as women's positions, but the biblical view is God created a male soul and a female soul, and they operate and function differently, and there are certain roles that are designed for men and certain roles that are designed for women, and you don't mix them. Once you start mixing them, you end up collapsing a culture internally. And I read from you a few weeks ago, I think it was on a Wednesday night class, a recent book review from the New York Times Book Review, where there's a book that, that has come out and, and, and arguing that, that one of the major mistakes that the feminist movement has made is trying to find some sort of basis in history for a matriarchy. And matriarchies have never survived in history. They never produced any kind of successful culture. And the only place in history that you find matriarchies is in extreme degenerate pagan cultures. The cultures that advanced and produced anything in history have never been matriarchal. Of course, that's not politically correct because, oh my, the reason we have so much problems today is because of those awful men and their historical patriarchy. And uh, that is just pure pagan hogwash. And it shows that in our culture, we have become so... Uh, So anesthetized to the realities of what the Word of God teaches that we no longer think that that these are real issues. And what's hard is you get out in any kind of workplace situation and you're forced by government decree and to, in order to compromise biblical positions and to operate as if these pagan concepts are in fact true. And it's an extremely difficult position to be in, and we're, I'm going to develop this in a lot more detail uh, as we go forward. But what we have to do before we do that is begin with some understanding of the doctrine of leadership as presented In the scripture. See, one of the things that has happened today, not only in the realm of role reversal and confusion between men and women, but you see that that what happens when you destroy true biblical leadership is that instead of leaders being dependent upon the Word of God for their values, for their thinking, Or not only their goals and objectives, but also their methodology. Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong and just as wrong as a wrong thing done in a wrong way. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. But what happens is, in a paganized culture, is you start operating on pragmatism and very subtly you begin to live on the basis of end justifies the means mentality. And you see this over and over today in Christianity. You get churches where the pastors are so consumed with numbers that any kind of methodology works as long as you bring in people and the consequence is always a compromise of the truth. In fact, one of the most uh, successful of these strategies was carried out by a pastor in um, a suburb of Chicago, started in the late 70s and his whole approach was to, was to reach uh, unbelievers or uh, what he calls unchurched, unchurched Mary and unchurched Harry and that's become popular terminology today and so what he would do is he would go out and knock on doors and take a survey and ask questions like what well, are you going to church anywhere now? And if they were, he sort of bypassed them or said, Great, I don't want to steal you from somebody else. Just keep going to church. You know, It didn't matter whether it was a heretical church or apostate church or not, which shows right away he's compromised certain values. And um, then he would say, if they weren't going to church, well, why aren't you going to church? What, what what makes you uncomfortable in church? Why why don't you go? Well, I don't know those songs. So, you know, I don't like to be forced to sing things I don't know. Okay, check that off. We won't sing songs people don't know. I don't like the music. It doesn't have the kind of beat I like to listen to. You know, it's not modern rock. It's not a, It doesn't have a, a driving guitar beat. Okay, check that off. Get rid of the organ. Now we're going to have a... Um, uh, we're gonna have guitars and drums up in front, and we're gonna have hard driving music, and, uh, with, with what so-called worship leaders, and instead of, uh, the congregation emphasizing congregational hymn singing, we'll put all the focus on this, uh, band up front, and if people want to sing along, that's great, and if not, that's great, so we'll get rid of that. Well, you know, I always have to park somewhere out in the Thule, so instead of, uh, um, I just, that's, that's not very friendly. Okay, well, we'll get rid of all the good parking spaces and put visitor signs on them and make everybody who's a regular attender park five blocks away, which, in fact, what they did. And as a result of that, he, he developed a church that is now the largest church in America. I read a doctoral dissertation that was published by Baker Bookhouse a few years ago that was done not from a biblical viewpoint. This was a guy working on a Ph.D. in sociology and wanted to do an analysis of this whole project from a sociological viewpoint. And He did an excellent and very objective critique. He spent half of the doctoral dissertation talking about the methodology, what the church was like, all the things they did, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And then he began uh, a critique and observations. And one of the more telling observations was that on this church, which had a staff of 300 pastors. Can you imagine that? 300 pastors, 15,000 or 20,000 people going to this church. They had 300 pastors. And you would be surprised how many of those pastors did not own a systematic theology. You take all 300 pastors and not one of them. Not one of them owned a systematic theology or a book on doctrine, period. And not one of them had a degree from a Bible college or seminary. Oh my, that's, somehow that's going to change. They won't be as creative. They're, they're going to be too, too caught up in the past and not the future. So we don't want anybody who's had their creativity uh, stifled by going to seminary or Bible college. My goodness, how terrible. And so what happens is that they put all of their dependence on human viewpoint methodologies of salesmanship and, and uh, running the church according to the latest... Uh, business practices that come out of uh, Harvard Business School or wherever and operating on sociological tools and surveys and and you know my my critique all along has been well th- that just sounds like going out and interviewing all the little preschoolers and asking them what they want to do in school and then building your curriculum around that I mean it's just insane but it did make everybody it does make everybody very happy and uh, one little story about that church is that the pastor decided at one point that, because um, I think he's a believer and I think he knows the gospel, but he doesn't know much more. And uh, he decided to do a little series on sin. Within four weeks, the attendance in the church had dropped off by 50%. So the elders came to him and said, I really think you should quit doing this study. People don't like it. So he did. That just tells you something about where we are today, and you won't find that problem here at Preston City Bible Church. We are going to focus on the Scriptures. But this is what happens when a culture becomes more and more influenced by pagan thought, by relativistic thought, and you lose and get divorced from the absolutes of Scripture and refuse to learn to think biblically. It's radical to think biblically, and the more the culture is paganized, the more radical you're going to appear and the more people are going to look at you like you're some old fossil that, that holds on to some kind of antiquated medieval concept of life. But that's biblical. It's because we live in a culture that is in full-blown rebellion against the truth of God and the truth of God's word. And the last thing they want to hear is somebody come along and say, yeah, there really is an absolute and God does exist. You can talk about anything on the college classroom. You can talk about the goddess of the earth, and you can talk about uh, that in all of your ecology classes, the Gaia, Mother Earth goddess, and all this other stuff, and the, the female goddess. And if you talk about God as a woman, you're okay in a sociology class. But if you talk about the biblical God... The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus Christ, who came to earth as the eternal Son of God, who became man, an undiminished deity, took on true humanity, and went to the cross to die as a substitute for our sin, because man is under eternal condemnation because he's a sinner and uh, oh my that hurts my self image we can't say somebody's a sinner because because they they just might feel bad about themselves and uh if you come in and you teach something like that then then that's uh you're imposing religion on everybody else so you can't do that so you're out but everybody else can impose their secularism and their uh their uh pantheism disguised as modern ecology and they can teach that in the classroom and impose that on the students and brainwash uh, your, your children who come out of a, a biblically sound church and then go off to a university somewhere and are brainwashed by all of this paganism. They can do that, but they can't teach the truth. And that's what happens. And we're moving more and more to a real culture war. And that, my friends, is the culture war. It is not what you hear about from people like Bill Bennett, who is a full-blown and proud-to-be a Roman Catholic. Now, I respect his position as his position and his right to choose whatever he wants to choose, but he's not coming at his morality from a biblical viewpoint. He's coming at it from a Roman Catholic viewpoint, and so when he talks about culture wars, he's just talking about morality versus immorality. But what we're talking about is spirituality based on the truth of the Word of God versus all forms of human viewpoint. And the scripture says that we are to take captive every thought for Jesus Christ. Not just the ones related to salvation. Not just the ones related to spirituality, but every thought. That means that every category of human intellectual activity, literature, art, politics, government, legal theory, every thought captive for Jesus Christ. And that means that we have to have leadership in places to do that men who and women who are willing to stand in the gap and take a stand and risk everything for the truth of God's Word because that's the only thing that really matters so this is going to get us into the doctrine of leadership and I just want to introduce it this morning point number one the doctrine of leadership is related to the first divine institution this is going to be a rather long introductory point. We'll probably just get point one in today. The first divine institution relates to human responsibility in the Garden of Eden. God's, God placed Adam and the woman in the garden and he said, you may eat of any tree in the garden. Except one, except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the instant you eat from it, you will definitely die. Speaking about spiritual death. This is what we call the institution of human responsibility. So therefore, responsibility is authorized and initiated by God before there's ever a fall. So for, for some of us who, who may not like responsibility a whole lot, it's not a result of sin, folks. That responsibility was in perfect environment. Responsibility. Let's define our terms a little bit. You know, this is very important. And as I was uh, preparing this, I pulled out a dictionary to start looking up terms. Now, I thought as I did that, that's something that we ought to be doing downstairs. One of the things we're focusing on more and more this year is what goes on in prep school, in our training school, in Sunday school. And that is that sometimes it, it would be a good idea maybe to have two or three dictionaries in every classroom. Find out whatever they use in public school, whatever is graded to their level. Maybe put two or three dictionaries in there. And when the teachers are teaching, you can have, and you come to a new word, have the kids look it up in a dictionary. Start training them to think in terms of vocabulary and what words mean. Do that at home too, parents. When you find a new word, don't tell your kid what it means They go look it up in the dictionary. It's one of the most important skills they can learn so that they can think. Responsibility, according to Webster's, means that a person holds a specific duty, office, or trust and is answerable and accountable for decisions and actions in relation to that duty, office, or trust. Let me say that again. Responsibility means that a person holds a specific duty, office, or trust and is answerable and accountable for decisions and actions in relation to that duty, office, or trust. Now, there are four key words in that definition that are part of that definition that we need to focus on and define as well. And they are authority, answerable, accountable, and obligation. Not all of those who use precisely that definition, I realize that, but they're all part of that concept. Authority, answerable, accountable, and obligated. Now, before we define those terms... Let's think, think about what goes on with Adam in the garden. He, is, he holds a specific position. He is the image of God, and we have studied that, and that means not only that he is, in, in terms of who he is, as the immaterial, uh, immaterial makeup that reflects God as the shadow image of God, but that what he is, or, or who he is, is determines what he is to do he is created the way he is because of what he is to do he is in the image of God so he can serve as the representative of God an image is a representation and his function is to represent God to the creation so he holds a office he holds a trust and he is answerable and accountable for that he is answerable to God that brings in the idea of authority when you are answerable to somebody that person is in authority Over you. So once again, we see that the concept of authority is part of perfect environment. We've even studied in the Trinity that there's an authority relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So authority is not something God designed to handle sin and control sin, but it's something that is even part of perfect environment before sin entered into creation. And so Adam was accountable for his decisions, and there were consequences for making the wrong decision, so that if he behaved in an irresponsible manner, then there would be negative consequences. Okay, let's break it down in our closing moments here. Answerable implies that there is someone in authority over the person to whom the responsible party is obligated. Answerable means that that there is someone in authority over the person to whom that responsible party, that person, is obligated accountable suggests that there is the presence of positive and negative consequences for decisions in relation to the duty or trust which is assigned which is the assigned responsibility that there is the presence of positive and negative consequences for one's decision in relation to the duty or trust which is the assigned responsibility Further, I think it suggests the imminence of that reward, that or punishment. That with, with irresponsibility, there is immediate consequences. Authority implies a chain of command. Not a popular concept for many people today, but authority implies a chain of command, which does not necessarily negate relationship factors. Now, the reason I say that is there are a lot of people that think, well, if you have a chain of command they think they often think in terms of military and as something that is very harsh and there's no relationship involved and yet you see an authority chain in the trinity and there's the closest most intimate relationship of of anything in the triune godhead and yet there's authority and role distinction but it is they are so close and so intimate that jesus says i and the father are one so authority does not suggest as it does to many people, that there is a some sort of breakdown or it makes it too impersonal or it harms relationship. For the closest relationship of any, Jesus to the Father, is also one that is clearly based on an authority relationship. Jesus he says, I can do nothing unless the Father gives it to me. So authority implies a chain of command and that concept does not negate relationship factors. And then the fourth concept is obligation which implies, according to the dictionary, it implies the existence of a formal contract, promise, or the demands of a conscience or custom which binds someone legally or morally to a certain course of action. Now, that's an interesting definition. Obligation implies the existence of a formal contract, promise, or the demands of conscience or custom which binds someone legally or morally to a certain course or action. Now, that means... Adam was established had a contract with God in the Edenic Covenant. So there's an obligation. Some people get the idea obligation is somehow contradictory to grace. But grace means that when you fail the obligation, God's still in the relationship. There were obligations in the Abrahamic Covenant. It was an unconditional, unilateral covenant between God and Abraham. And God said, I'm going to do this despite what you do, but Abraham, you still are obligated to leave Ur the Chaldees, to leave Haran to leave Lot, to live in the land. Now, my blessings are not conditioned upon your fulfilling your obligations, but that doesn't mean you don't have obligations. And too often people have taken grace to mean licentiousness, that I don't have any responsibilities or obligations, I just do whatever I want to. No, grace is not a license to sin, but grace is the umbrella under which we know that despite our sinfulness, God is not going to leave the relationship. Our relationship with God is not based on our works, on our anything positive in us. It's totally and exclusively based on who and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So well, that will finish today. We'll come back and review that first point. But before we can really understand some of the dynamics that are going on in, in Judges 4 and 5 under the, the author's uh, theme of the degeneracy of the leadership in Israel, we have to understand... What the biblical doctrine of leadership is all about. So that will probably be our subject for a couple of weeks. And everyone here is involved in some leadership relationship. Parents, husbands, at work, in the military. Just about everyone here has a role to play in leadership. So you need to be here with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that our relationship with you is not based on on anything other than your grace. That in your love for us, you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That while Jesus hung there between heaven and earth, every single sin in human history, every sin each of us will ever commit, past, present, and future, was imputed to Him, and He was judicially condemned for our sin. He bore our judgment and carried it in His body on the cross, so that we might be free from that condemnation. And the way that that is applied to us, the Scripture says, is simply by faith alone. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it. We do not have to make some bargain with you. We do not have to uh, do anything. It is unconditional. It is free. It is a free gift. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, then right now is the opportunity for them to make that clear. If you're here this morning and you fit that bill, this is your chance to make sure that you will spend eternity in heaven. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not based on what you do or who you are. It's based on Jesus Christ who did everything for you at the cross. And all you have to do right now, right where you sit, is to believe that Jesus Christ died for you. God knows what you believe and he will save you as a result of that. Now, Father, we pray that the rest of us would be challenged by the things that we have studied, that it would be used by the Holy Spirit to renovate our thinking, that we might grow to maturity and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.